We are continuing this morning in Colossians, but I want you to start uh, with me in 2 Corinthians and verse 11. I want you to see the consistency of the Apostle Paul's love and devotion for those whom he led to Christ and those whom he preached the word to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is confronting throughout the book of 2 Corinthians um, what might be referred to as super apostles. That is, these were false teachers who considered themselves to be greater than the Apostle Paul. Uh, They seemed to have um, inside knowledge, so to speak, they thought. And um, they were using their teachings to pull people away from devotion to Christ into any number of uh, areas, some of which we'll see in Colossians as well. But uh, look at the passion and the shepherd's heart of the apostle in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. The letter of 2 Corinthians is the only defensive letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the sense that he was defending his ministry. Otherwise, he was quite content to let the Lord defend his ministry for him. But he did so in Corinth because there were these super apostles, these false teachers, who were doing something that aggravated the heart of the apostle. They were leading new believers astray, away from the simplicity and purity of love and devotion to Christ into peripheral matters and other philosophies. And these were being led astray, he says, by the serpent, the same serpent that deceived Eve. So you see the heart of the apostle for these people whom God gave to him to minister to, and his heart is provoked with a certain level of holy angst and concern for their souls and their spiritual well-being. We find the same in Colossians, if you'll turn there with me now. We've been dealing with a number of 
doctrines in the book of Colossians. And it's because there were false teachers that were affecting the church at Colossae as well. And they were doing pretty much the same thing. They were detracting people from Christ, distracting them from Christ, leading them into peripheral issues that were uh, additional to the gospel, so to speak, as far as righteousness is concerned. If you look with me at Colossians 1, we'll pick it up in 24 just to get the context again to see where we've been and where we will be at this morning. Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In December of 2012, some children discovered the body of a homeless man who had been frozen to death under a bridge in Wyoming. Soon after, he was identified as Timothy Gray, the long-lost relative of a reclusive heiress who had left him $19 million of her $300 million fortune. Extremely wealthy, didn't realize it, and lived as a homeless man under a bridge. Sadly, some Christians live their Christian life in a similar manner. 
although we are indescribably wealthy in Christ, we sometimes live like we are homeless. We sometimes fail to apply the riches of the treasure that belongs to us in Christ. That's what was happening in the church at Colossae. The ideas and the philosophies of the world were taking their hearts captive. They were being led astray. It blinded their eyes from seeing the true riches that belonged to them as adopted children of the king of heaven. And so the apostle urges them to pursue Christ above all. And that's our big idea this morning. We should pursue Christ above all for the sake of others because he is the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge. That's the apostle's point here in verses one, two, and three of chapter two. And the apostle here is continuing to exalt Christ through his writing. And he urges them not to forsake the fullness of their spiritual inheritance in Christ in exchange for artificial rules and man-made regulations that feed their confidence in their flesh instead of a deepening confidence in Christ himself. He warns them to turn away from legalistic teachings which lead to exalting themselves over other Christians. You see this in uh, verse four. I say this in order that none, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He was concerned that the Colossian believers were being deluded by worldly arguments. In verse eight, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And then later on in chapter two, in verse 16, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Because these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Look at verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Asceticism is is extreme self-denial for the sake of making yourself feel more righteous before God or more spiritual than other people. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, submitting instead, instead of submitting to Christ, submitting to man-made regulations of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and all of these, verse 23 says, have an appearance of wisdom. That's a key thought. All of these things have an appearance of being wise, and yet they promote self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, man-made regulations and legalistic restrictions on all of the things that people add to Christ 
never reach the heart. The heart of the problem is the heart. And you can try all you want to create your own little utopia, spiritual utopia, in which you will be safe and protected. And yet, the problem is, the greatest problem in your life and in my life is not out there. It's in here. It's the heart. And only Christ, through the gospel, can transform our hearts. And so as we saw in chapter 1 and verse 28, the apostles' ministry was driven by a desire to one day present every believer to God as a mature disciple of Christ. So Paul was determined to avoid any teaching that distracted him or his listeners from seeing the fullness of Christ. He warned them against all of the Christ plus ways of thinking. Christ plus human philosophy. Christ plus man's wisdom. Christ plus food restrictions. Christ plus special religious days and holidays and festivals. Christ plus severe restrictions upon the body. Thinking that all of these things would lead to greater spirituality. But they don't. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they never reach the heart of the problem. So with the strength of the Holy Spirit within him, Paul was determined to do everything he could to relentlessly point others to Christ. He wanted them and us to behold the treasures of Christ and therefore be dissatisfied with any teaching that robbed Christ of the fullness of his glory. And by embracing our true riches in Christ and pointing others to do the same, we lead others into a closer walk with Christ. In these three verses, we see three characteristics of ministry that leads others to treasure Christ. Number one, ministry that leads others to treasure Christ exudes passionate concern. Look at the passionate concern of the apostle in verse one. You see his pastoral heart. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul lived with a continual, almost overwhelming concern for the eternal welfare of the souls under his care. And that resulted in a ministry that was personal and passionate and prayerful. You can see his struggle, he says, in verse one. How great a struggle I have for you. The word struggle uh, is the same word from which we get our English word agony. Paul agonized in his soul 
for the spiritual well-being of the people that he preached the word to. His passion for their souls compelled him to constantly remind them to keep Christ as the center of all. Christ is the supreme one. We've seen that. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the sovereign Lord. He is to be preeminent in our hearts because he positionally is preeminent over all. So Paul had this struggle, this agony, this strenuous, demanding, athletic contest. That's the picture of the word. If you've ever been involved in a strenuous, demanding, athletic kind of contest, that's the picture here, but on the, on the spiritual level, inside the heart. It's a picture of intense effort and self-discipline that he put forth in ministry toward other believers. He gave everything that he could give for their spiritual welfare. In, in chapter four and verse 12, we actually see this same word used where it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. So this, this struggle that the apostle was experiencing involved his prayers for the people. Praying that they would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Maybe you don't realize this, but prayer is spiritual labor. It is an intense struggle. It's a struggle against all of the forces of evil in the kingdom of darkness. We often forget that this is against us when we are trying to pray. How often are we interrupted? How often are we distracted? How often are we discouraged and we give up because the answers don't come as fast as we want them to come and we fail to realize that this is like an ongoing, strenuous, athletic contest. Praying for the souls of other people brings us into this conflict, the conflict between Satan and Christ. Satan opposing Christ. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 11, further on in the chapter from where we read earlier, Paul describes some of the results of this spiritual conflict that he was involved in. Says in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 24, five times he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's intense suffering. And yet he goes on to say, in addition to that, 
There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. On top of all of that is the inner athletic contest of wrestling against the enemy and the kingdoms of darkness and the anxiety that the apostle struggled with for the sake of others. Who is weak, he says, and I am not weak. Who is spiritually weak in the flock and I don't feel it, the apostle says. And I don't try to bear that burden with them. And who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Who is led astray by people and I do not get angry about it in my spirit? Because I have this jealousy for the well-being of these souls. That's what Paul is expressing. That's a struggle. His heart exudes with passionate concern for the spiritual welfare of those under his care. God had given him a heart for these people and that drove him to work for the sake of others. Pastors and elders serve as under-shepherds of the good shepherd, the good shepherd of Christ. And we strive to keep growing, to shepherd you faithfully, to lead you according to the word of God the word of the good shepherd, but this reality of struggle compels me to say, will you please pray for us? Will you please pray for us every day? I know that there are some of you in this church that pray for me every day. I know that. And it is such a gift. Pray for all of us as leaders that we will stand strong upon the word of God because there is this, Paul says, a great struggle. I have for you, he says, and those at Laodicea. Laodicea was about 10 miles from Colossae, and and this is only one of two times that city is mentioned in the Bible. The second time is in the letters of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Laodicea was the church that wasn't hot or cold, but it was lukewarm, and Jesus says, you make me want to puke I'm sorry that's just the best way to say it I think to get the picture there you I I want to vomit you out of my mouth because you're not serious about Christ you're not on fire for him and you're not dead cold you're like somewhere in between I have concern, Paul says, for you and those at Laodicea and for everyone who has not seen me face to face. Colossae is one of the places that Paul didn't visit according to the biblical record, at least uh, before he wrote this letter. He had not even met these people face to face and yet he prayed for them. Isn't that something you and I are called to do? 
We pray for people that we have never met face to face and we will never meet face to face. We pray for the persecuted church. We pray for the millions and millions of Christians throughout this world who are taking their lives in their own hands, so to speak, by professing Christ. While we live in the comforts of this country, And we get all upset if we're persecuted through social media. (laughs) And I'm not saying those things don't hurt. Any level of attack hurts us as believers. But let's realize how good we really have it. And let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, many of whom are losing their lives for Christ. So Paul's saying 24-7, he was concerned about their spiritual well-being. And so there was this great struggle in him. There's a second uh, characteristic of ministry that leads others to treasure Christ, and that is It edifies toward a purpose. This is somewhat building off of 128 where we saw that Paul's passion was uh, to proclaim Christ and what drove his ministry at, at every level was to help believers come to maturity in Christ, to realize who they are in Christ and then to learn to walk according to that. But you see, the edification of believers is something that was a great priority to the apostle. The word starts with that, which connects us to this struggle. What is he struggling for? He's struggling toward this purpose that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, full assurance, understanding, knowledge. So this overriding purpose that drove Paul's ministry was that he worked to edify believers, to build them up so that they would be rooted and built up in Christ. That's what he wanted. The purpose of Paul's ministry was to evangelize the lost and then when people came to Christ to to build into their lives, to build them up in Christ, that they would be rooted and built up in him. And that was really the best safeguard that that Paul could establish for them against all of these other legalistic regulations and man-made systems of righteousness. But you can see a fourfold edification here in verse two. First, to be encouraged in heart. He wanted their hearts to be encouraged. The word is, uh, means to come alongside, to comfort, uh, and to give courage. That's what the word encourage means, to give courage. So when we encourage people who are down and out, who are discouraged, we give them courage. Give them courage to continue to press on. Homer Kent says the idea of this con- in this context of this, this word is not so much consoling the grief-stricken, but of encouraging, confirming, or strengthening the perplexed. 
The apostle was not trying to comfort his readers because of the damage which false teaching may have done in their midst, but rather to encourage them to stand firm and to press toward the goal of full understanding. So he wants them to be encouraged, to have courage in their heart to stand firm on Christ and to keep their focus centralized on Christ and not to be pulled away by other teachings. Secondly, to be united in love, he says. I love the language here. Being knit together in love. Knit together. Maybe you like to knit. Maybe you uh, have a mom or a grandmother who liked to knit and I was always amazed at my sister and watching her knit how she could take two threads from two different balls of yarn and use these goofy long needles and somehow twirl all together to create a sweater or a baby bonnet or something like how do you do that <laughs> I just don't even want to learn I just want to watch <laughs> You just knit it all together. And why did Paul invest this, this word ministry in the lives of these people? Because he wanted them to be knit together in love. That they themselves would be knit together in love with one another. Which is why he then says in, in chapter 3, he says, um, if, if you look there with me, notice that after he goes on this long list of the kinds of godly qualities that we should be uh, developing in our lives or putting on in Christ, um, he says in verse 14, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So he uses two different uh, word pictures here. One is the word picture of, of knitting, knitting together in love. The other is a clothing wardrobe kind of picture where you've got all these pieces of clothing you're going to put on and now you're going to tie it all together with a belt and the belt is called love. Love is that which keeps all of those virtues together in Christ. The word knit here actually is a medical uh, term. It means to put back together, to suture. And so God looks at us and he sees the ways that we are out of joint as a body, he's working to put us into joint, put the joints in place, as Ephesians 4 speaks of. He's knitting us together. He's doing it all in love, knit together in love. And this kind of love for one another is one of the things that guards our congregation, protects us from cliques, little tiny churches within churches because, oh, I like the people who like me. I like the people best to do stuff exactly the way I would do it. Instead, Paul says, no, we are a diverse body of believers that Christ knits us together in love. In whose love? In the love of Christ. To be assured in spiritual understanding, full assurance of understanding, 
Notice that phrase, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Paul wants them to grow, to be confident of who they are in Christ. And that is what I'm saying to you this morning. You are already rich in Christ, rich beyond your dreams. And I want you to understand that. Understand who you are in Christ. Apply these truths to your life and you will be led by the Spirit to grow in assurance of your faith. That's how God works assurance of salvation in our lives. Assurance of salvation doesn't come from simply being able to remember a time in the past when you made a decision for Jesus. I mean, that might be fine if you are able to remember that. For me, all I can say is it was in the first few months of 1984 when the light bulbs went on and, and God drew my heart to him and I began to think differently and want differently. Assurance of salvation comes as we continue to grow in Christ and see the riches that belong to us in him and we then apply those to our lives today. So if you want assurance of your salvation, stop looking always at the past, exclusively at the past. Start looking at today and saying, Lord, how am I different today than I was a year ago, two years ago, five years ago? How am I more like Christ You ought to be able to see that progress in your life. Because the Spirit of God is always working in us. And then finally, to be growing in knowledge. The knowledge of Christ. This spiritual understanding produces knowledge of God's mystery. God's mystery, we saw earlier in chapter one, is is something that God kept hidden but now revealed and it's now fully revealed in Christ. And so what is the pinnacle of God's mystery? What is the pinnacle of God's revelation? It is Christ Jesus, the fullness of God in bodily form. That's the apostle's point. And he didn't want them to simply know about Christ. He longed for them to know Jesus experientially. To be growing in intimate fellowship. To be walking with the Savior. This is all part of this edifying purpose that he has. And then finally you see a third characteristic Ministry that leads others to treasure Christ exalts one person, and that is Christ. This mystery, he says, verse 2, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the storehouse of wisdom. He is the storehouse of all true knowledge. Wisdom is is different than knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to understand how the various biblical truths throughout the scripture weave together into this fabric. And you stop, as you mature in Christ, you stop just seeing everything as separate little things. But you start to see them all woven together into this Christ-centered fabric 
What's, what's Paul's point here? His point is that we must understand that we are so complete in Christ that we do not need to look anywhere else for wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom that claims to be wisdom, all knowledge that claims to be true must be tested by Christ who is wisdom and knowledge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read of how Paul was confronting the issue of um, man-centered, highfalutin kind of philosophies and knowledge in the church there in, in Corinth that the believers thought themselves superior to others because they had all this worldly knowledge on top of the gospel And Paul says instead that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. So he puts in contrast the message of the cross with that which the world says is knowledge, understanding, wisdom. It goes on in verse 24 to say, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So you can read the history of the world's most famous philosophers and the goofy ideas that they came up with in regard to who we are and, and how the world came to be and what is the meaning of life. And it all sounds so highfalutin. And then you just open the Bible and you see the truth of Christ, the fullness of wisdom, the fullness of knowledge in Jesus Only the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to this because from an earthly perspective, Paul says it looks like foolishness. It looks like the wisdom of Christ is foolish. It seems like, yeah, I I shouldn't really obey God's word in that area because that, that message of the world seems to make more sense. Paul was so concerned for these believers as they were being led astray by worldly philosophies. And so his aim, he says in verse um, three, is to exalt one person, and that is Christ. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Believer, listen to me. If you sit here this morning and you have the light of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ within you, it is because God turned the light bulbs on for you. He broke through all the rubbish of human philosophies and man's wisdom and he turned 
the light on. And now through the light of his word, you see things differently than you saw them before. This is a work of the spirit of God for which Christ should be praised. We should live as though we are spiritually rich in Christ, following the fullness of wisdom and knowledge that is in him. Let us not be like that homeless man under a bridge. Let us not live according to the world's thinking, the philosophies of the world. Let us instead come to realize who we are in Christ, who is the fullness of wisdom and knowledge, and in him we can partake of that wisdom and that knowledge and live our lives in such a way that he remains preeminent. Father, we pray that your spirit will continue his gracious work in us. We are so grateful, Lord, that at one point you turned the light bulb on in our soul, our heart, and we can now see things differently. We can see with the light of truth, the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. Forgive us for the ways that we stray away from the centrality of Christ. Cause us, Lord, to be like the psalmist who walks in the counsel of your word. Father, I pray if anyone is here today who needs the light bulb turned on, that you would do that by your word, by your spirit, that they might see Christ in all of his glory and run to him. We pray in his name, amen.